All right. Verse uh, 12 uh, says, he that is, this is chapter 11 of Proverbs. Verse 12 says, He that is void of wisdom despiseth his neighbor, but a man of understanding holds his peace. A talebearer revealeth secrets, but he that is of a faithful spirit concealeth the matter. And now, we want to finish up on that verse this morning. Uh, we talked last week about this matter of uh, revealing secrets, and yet he that is of a faithful spirit, and that which the person of the faithful spirit, the one who is trustworthy does, is conceal a matter. It's the word kasa, and kasa means to cover. It's related to the one of the words, the Hebrew words for faith, kasa, uh, which uh, has the idea of the the animal running into the crevice of the rock to be hidden or to be covered over. It's uh, related to that word, and uh, but it means to be covered for, uh, like the covering of clothes, uh, or uh, for secrecy. It's used a number of times in the book of Proverbs. Look at uh, Proverbs 10, verse 18. Um, it says, He that hideth hatred has lying lips. That's the person that covers that over. And he that utters slander is a fool. In verse 18 of chapter 10. Verse 6 of chapter 10. Blessings upon the head of the just. That violence covereth the mouth of the wicked. <clears throat> verse 11. Uh, the mouth of the righteous man is a well of life, but violence covereth the mouth of the wicked. It's used uh, in Proverbs 28 and uh, verse 13. Uh, Proverbs 28, 13. Uh, he that covereth his sins shall not prosper, but whoso confesseth and forsaketh um, uh, the that very sin uh, shall have mercy. And uh, also... Uh, it's used in the in the sense of forgiveness in three places um, in the book of Proverbs, chapter 10 and verse 12, where it says, Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all sins. doesn't mean covered in a wrong sense there, but rather uh, to uh, uh, overlook it because of love. And then in chapter 12, verse 16, it says, A fool's wrath is presently known, but a prudent man covereth shame. Uh, again, it's not hiding it, uh, so it's not exposed and revealed, but rather uh, it's, it's similar to uh, what happened with the sons of Noah uh, who came in and covered the shame and the nakedness of their father uh, rather than to look upon it or leave it exposed. Uh, there was the covering of it, the clothing of it, if you please. In chapter 17 and verse 9, it says this, He that covereth the transgression seeketh love, but he that repeateth the matter separateth friends. Again, the same contrast is here as is in our verse. The person who really loves the other person will not blab it around to everyone else. You may deal with it, you may help with it, you may become a part of the solution uh, of the problem, but uh, it's a contrast here between one uh, who uh, seeks love by just keeping quiet and one who repeateth the matter and separates chief friends. And so 
Uh, it's the idea of covering in, in, in the sense of forgiveness. In that sense, God covers our sin. Uh, the whole idea of atonement in the Old Testament is that of a covering over. And uh, uh, the book of Hebrews tells us that the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. But the blood of bulls and goats were a temporary covering for sin. And uh, that covering for sin awaited the time where sin would be taken away at the cross. And God was willing to allow that because of his love and because uh, he wanted to deal with the sin problem. In Proverbs 19 and verse 11, it says, The discretion of a man deferreth his anger, and it is his glory to pass over a transgression. It, it takes a person of a faithful spirit. Uh, it's a person who, who has a close, a meaningful relationship with God. Uh, a person who has a heart of forgiveness and a heart of love. It's a glory for such an individual to pass over transgression. That is, when a person offends you, uh, when a person hurts you, when a person misuses your name, or uh, uh, puts a, a blot on your reputation, uh, it's a glory for you to be able to say, fine, we'll just, we won't worry about that. Uh, remember in 1 Corinthians 13, one of the phrases there uh, from the Phillips translation says, love does not keep track of the wrong that it suffers. It's uh, the word logizomai that is translated that way there, and that's a good translation, uh, albeit that Phillips is a paraphrase. Nevertheless, it, it, it really expresses the thought of the word logizomai because logizomai uh, means to count up as in a ledger. And it, it's talking there about the wrong that you suffered. It's the privilege of the believer to forgive a person, uh, to just say, uh, say that's fine, uh, I'll, I'll let it go. Uh, I think of a, of a text over in uh, um, Matthew chapter, isn't it, 21, where it talks about the matter of forgiveness. Maybe you want to turn to that and make a note or two. It's actually 18. In chapter 18, it's been talking about discipline in the church. Now mind you, we've already touched on that subject as we've been studying these two verses that are coupled together. Because um, there is a place for the handling of problems. Not, it may not be perfect because imperfect men carry it on, but it is God's method of dealing with problems. And uh, uh, it's, uh, it's dealt with here, and uh, there's a tremendous... Uh, some tremendous promises uh, in connection with that. In fact, where it talks about two of you agreeing uh, as touching anything, and when it talks about um, uh, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst, it is in this context. Uh, when when the, the idea that uh, where two or three are gathered together, uh, that there am I in the midst, uh, is not in a context of prayer. I'm sure that it's true. I'm sure that where two or three gather for prayer, the Lord's in your midst too. But the text is actually in a place of church discipline. That where two or three are gathered together for the purpose of discipline. If two of you agree as touching anything, it shall be done unto him. Those two texts which are so often used as prayer promises in their primary text have to do with church discipline. So after dealing with church discipline, 
It's, uh, Peter comes to the Lord in verse 21 and says, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Now, Peter was willing to be somewhat generous. Because you remember the Old Testament law, uh, the concept was an eye for an eye and tooth for tooth. And uh, the people were very much caught up in the idea of justice. It's, a, it's amazing when justice condemns the other person, then uh, you generally are for it. But when justice condemns you, you're not quite so uh, sure that you want justice. And it's then you want mercy. And so that's so, sort of the way the Jews' attitude was. They, they thought that uh, Gentile nations and uh, people that were apostate from, from uh, uh, their uh, customs and so on and so forth, that such individuals should certainly have justice. So they were all for justice. But uh, they weren't much for forgiveness. And uh, that's part of the emphasis of the Sermon on the Mount. Christ is twisting this around to show uh, God's intent even in justice and show the character of God revealed in the Sermon on the Mount. And so what he says, he says, you say thus and so, but I say unto you, and that became the formula that Matthew, Matthew used repeatedly to demonstrate that Christ was actually presenting a higher law, a law that was above the law of uh, uh, the, the, the strict uh, regulation and uh, was a law of love. <clears throat> and so uh, whereas uh, the Pharisees said, uh, love your friends and hate your enemies, uh, the higher law was to love even your enemies and pray for them that despitefully use you and persecute you and so on. And uh, that, of course, was a, a little tough to swallow, particularly because the Jews had their share of persecution, were even then under the Roman yoke. And so Peter, when he comes along, shows some amazing growth because now that, that uh, the Lord has, has talked about about uh, restoration, which is the real goal of church discipline. And this shows uh, the, the concept that Peter picked up on this. Uh, all right, Lord, we, we understand that if, if uh, a man has sinned, uh, then we go to him directly and uh, we seek repentance. But suppose the guy repents and then goes right out and does it again. And I go to him again and again he repents. And, uh, and again I forgive him and then he goes and does it again. And then I repent, he repents again after I go to him. And uh, he, it says that I've gained a brother, but how many times do I have to gain this particular brother? And uh, he says, till seven times? And now that's, that's tremendous progress, Peter. Because seven times is a whole lot better than none. But the Lord answers and says unto 70 times 7, 490 uh, times. Of course, uh, the numbers game uh, in, in the, the book of, uh, well, in, in the whole of the Bible is, is a rather interesting thing because uh, uh, the, the idea of 7, of course, was a complete number. It was, it was the idea of completeness. And Peter, Peter... Um, may have, have, have been thinking in terms of the tremendous amount of, of, of sevens that you run into uh, in Scripture. 
And because numerology was much more known in that day than it is uh, even today. Uh, people played with numbers. There were a lot of things they did with numbers. Uh, we play with computers now. They didn't know anything about that. But they, they played with numbers and figures a lot of times. So I think maybe Peter had in mind uh, seven times, Lord, do I have to forgive him completely? And the Lord gives him ten times seven times seven which uh, is an enormous amount. It's, it's not only the 490, it, it has the idea of infinity uh, just in, in connection to it because how complete is complete? Uh, when you forgive him completely and then uh, uh, multiply that by 10 times completeness, uh, you, you have forgiven completely, all right? So that is, uh, that's the lesson uh, that becomes the backdrop for an amazing parable because the parable says this, therefore, is the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom that is dominated by, by the heavenly sphere, the kingdom uh, where, uh, where Christ is supreme, the, the kingdom where God is in control. Uh, the kingdom of heaven is likened unto a certain king who would take account of his servants. And when he had begun to reckon, he was just uh, going over his books with his accountant, one was brought unto him who owed him ten thousand talents. All right. Now, how much is ten thousand talents? That's far more than most people reckon. I, what happens is that when people, when people um, begin to figure ancient um, uh, figures, they uh, generally go to a Bible dictionary. And uh, the Bible dictionary will say a talent was worth X number of dollars, uh, which uh, is a little difficult to figure because the, the times have changed. For instance, when it was written in 1924 maybe, um, and a lot of times those are the figures that are used, uh, and then uh, uh, maybe uh, if they're a little later they figure a little bit for inflation, it doesn't give you the current market value because today on the market, you know, the, everything in the economy fluctuates and we've been in a time of severe um, inflation. Uh, so as a result, it's, it's a little difficult to figure. But uh, uh, one talent, one talent equals 6,000 denarii. And a denarii was the average wage for a day's work. Average wage for a day's work. And so, in actual fact, the, the 10,000 talents represents what a man would make getting an average wage in 164,309 years of wages. Right? When you figure it that way, we are talking about several billions of dollars. Not millions, but billions. You want to know the difference between a million and a billion? If you spend $10,000 per day, you'll get rid of a million dollars in about three months. If you spend $10,000 a day, you'll get rid of a billion dollars in 274 years. That means that $12 billion, which is approximately what 
this would be, and figuring in today's economy, approximately $12 billion. It would mean that it would, you would spend $10,000 a day for a total of 3,328 years. And that's what you wonder how Uncle Sam did so well in spending money because that, that is a lot of money. When you talk about trillions, you're talking about a lot more. The point is that this was an amount owed by a slave who had no resources. All right? It's an enormous amount. It's an amount that, that no stretch of the, by no stretch of the imagination could this man ever dream about paying this back. He has no assets. He is totally broke. And what happens? Well, now watch. That, makes, that gives you the setup. Now, look how humorous this story is. He began to reckon one was brought unto him who owed him 10,000 talents. But for as much as he had nothing with which to pay, his Lord commanded him to be sold, and his wife, and children, and all that he had, and payment to be made. He was willing to settle for bankruptcy. Allow the guy to take all of his assets and turn it over to him, and he said, we'll call it even. But the man is wiped out. He has nothing left. He doesn't have a wife. He doesn't have a child. They're sold into slavery. For the rest of their days, they would serve as slaves. And he would have pocketed whatever money he could have gotten out of that. He'd written off a pretty good chunk of it and only taken everything the man had to offer, including his labor for life. All right? The servant, therefore, fell down and worshipped him, saying, Lord, have patience with me and I will pay thee all. Now, he has nothing to pay, absolutely nothing. And he owes $12 billion dollars. And he says, just be patient. I'll give you all of it. Now, that's ridiculous. In fact, it's downright stupid. There isn't a... I mean, th th that king must have gone... It must have died laughing hearing that. You see, Scripture often uses hyperbole. And hyperbole is what's being used here. First place, a servant... There's no way he could even accrue such a debt. There's nothing... Nothing that could be imagined that could ever cause a person to, to owe someone $12 billion. I mean, that's just, can you imagine somebody coming along saying, uh, you owe me $12 billion in your condition? You know, and you probably make more than this guy did. All right. Well, then look, it says the Lord of that servant was moved with compassion. Instead of laughing about it, he says, this poor guy, he doesn't know what he's saying. He doesn't understand how much this is. But he says, what I'm going to do, I'm going to loose him and forgive him the debt. All right, now, what does that illustrate? It illustrates this. You had a debt before God that you could not pay. You had no credit with God. When you sinned, the scripture says, he that offends in one point is guilty of all. You became a debtor to the whole law. There's absolutely no way that you can stand before God and say, God, I did pretty well. It's not enough. God demands perfection, total perfection. You don't have it. You are desperate. You are bankrupt. And you kneel before God and say, Lord, just be patient with me and I'll give you all. And the Lord chuckles. <laughs> he says, are you kidding? You have a debt you can never pay. You have no resources with which to pay it. You're absolutely destitute. But on the merit of the blood shed on Calvary's cross by my son, I am willing 
forgive you. And if you know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior today, there's nothing in all the world like the sense of God's marvelous forgiveness. To know I'm forgiven. To recognize I'm, I'm a sinner saved by grace. That I didn't merit anything. As these, uh, just as I am says, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. We are totally thrown upon the mercy of God. That's for salvation. And we're all glad we're saved today. Aren't we glad that God's that kind of king? You bet. But, that's not the end of the story. Because the end of the story moves down another level. It says, the same servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, three months wages. Figuring your average salary today, think of how much three months wages is, alright? Compare it to the 12 billion. By the way, I did as bad as those people that write those uh, figures in the Bible dictionaries because when I figured 12 billion dollars, it was uh, several years ago now. I have to refigure that. I don't know what an average man's wage is today, but I figured it back there on the basis of the present situation. So it may be 24 billion by now. But nevertheless, it's too big to even imagine. And here's a man who owes him 100 days wages. 100 denarii. Alright? And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat saying, Pay me what thou owest. And his fellow servant fell down at his feet and besought him saying, Have patience with me and I will pay thee all. Same words he had used with the king except now, this time, it is within reason to assume that the other person might eventually be able to come up with that much money. And he would not. Who's the he? The he is the one that's just been forgiven this enormous debt. And he would not forgive the guy who owed him three months wages. But cast him into prison till he should pay the debt. What does it illustrate? Here you are having been forgiven a debt that you could never pay. God had mercy on you and he forgave you. Now, someone comes along and offends you, hurts you. What do you do? You say, I'm never going to forgive him. Never. Isn't that common? I hear that so often. People come in for counseling and they say, I'll never forgive him. I'll never forgive her. Is one of my favorite stories to use to illustrate how stupid that really is. If God can forgive you that enormous debt, you can forgive that person who slandered you, that person who's hurt you. You can forgive it. And love seeks to cover a transgression, to forgive a transgression. Of course, the the story goes on to talk in terms of uh, uh, application uh, because it's a parable. You've got to be careful not to carry a parable to a logical extreme uh, because uh, you have to 
evaluate it in terms of all of, of the uh, doctrine of the scripture. But the, in, in, the, in the secular uh, aspect of the story, it tells what would happen in such a case when his fellow servants saw what was done. Uh, they were very sorry and came and told unto their Lord all that was done. And his Lord, after he had called him, and said unto him, O thou wicked servant, I forgave thee all the debt, because thou besoughtest me. Shouldest not thou, who have had compassion on thy fellow servant, even as I had pity on thee? And his Lord was angry, and delivered him unto the inquisitors, till they should pay all that was due unto him. So likewise shall my heavenly Father also do to you, if you from your hearts forgive not every one that his, bro his brother his trespasses. The, the, the point is this. There's only one way for such a person to get out of prison. God, in a sense, allows such a one to be imprisoned. And there's only one way to get out of that prison. And that's forgive the other person the debt. When it comes to salvation, God is willing to forgive you. When it comes to the matter of your unwillingness to forgive someone else, when you will not forgive someone else, you have your own personal prison. And you'll stay in that prison until you forgive them. When you forgive them, God releases you from prison as well. And I think that, that the, the prison is, is a, a prison forged by your own hands. Because your lack of forgiveness, the lack of compassion, the lack of godly character, in this case, gives you your own personal prison. So I don't believe for a moment that what it's saying is that such a person... Uh, uh, if he's a born-again Christian, when he starts out, loses that salvation because he won't forgive someone else. That's not the point of the parable. The point of the parable is that you must forgive. And unless you do, lack of forgiveness is sin. Therefore, you dwell in the grip of sin. And so the Lord makes his point very, very clear. You must remember that God wants you to forgive. All right, now turn to Psalm, the book of Psalms, chapter 32, uh, verse 1, chapter 32 and verse 1. It says, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Now, again, this is a parallelism, synonymous, and... It is, it is saying, blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven. Or in other words, blessed is the man whose sin is covered. And again, it's the idea of covering over that sin. Uh, and then in verse, uh, in verse 5, it says, I acknowledge my sin unto thee, and mine iniquity have I not hidden. Same word. I didn't cover my sin. I opened and revealed that sin to you, and you covered it. There's such a difference between you hiding your sin and your covering over a sin because you forgive it. There's a tremendous difference between the two. If I have sin in my life, I must not harbor it. If I, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear, hear me. If uh, whosoever covereth his sin shall not prosper. If I have sin in my life, the best thing to do is open my heart to the Lord and confess it to Him and then confess it to others. Uh, in fact, I, I always like to say that, that within everything that you do, there is, a, there is a, a circle of confession. And I think it's, it's important 
to make a distinction here between a confession and a testimony. A confession is where you are revealing something you have done and admitting that it's sin. A testimony is when you have been forgiven and you share that with others so that they might be helped. So understand the difference between a confession and a testimony. A lot of times when, a, uh, when the Lord is really blessing in the midst of people, they'll have a testimony meeting and sometimes it'll become a confession meeting. And people will begin confessing their sins. We've seen that in times where the Lord is blessed in revival. And uh, there's nothing wrong with that, but you need to distinguish between the two. Because when, when you have something between you and God, it should be confessed to God. If we confess our sins, homo legeo, if you uh, agree with God concerning that sin, then God will forgive you and restore fellowship with you. And, and if it's something between you and the Lord, now that doesn't mean that you may not want to share it with mature Christians so that they can help you and give you solutions from Scripture to, to keep from doing this again. But I want you to understand that the circle of confession, when you do something that's private between you and the Lord and does not affect anyone else but you and the Lord, you should not make that a public matter. It's not important for you to stand before the church and confess that to the whole church. A lot of times people get into that, into that mess uh, of doing that. And uh, probably the most dramatic story that I ever heard of this was a fellow that stood up at Bible school when I was going there and there were a bunch of other people that were confessing their sin. And a lot of them were confessing things that had nothing to do with the audience. Uh, but it became sort of like, can you top this? And everybody was confessing, you know, and every story got a little worse because it made you sound spiritual if you confessed worse things. And, and it got worse and worse and worse. And finally a guy got up and uh, he, he said, I have to confess my sin of pride. He said, I um, did not want to be a preacher because all the preachers I knew had big noses. But he said, I knew that God, well, it's true, isn't it? I mean, <laughs> he, said, uh, he said, I believed that God was calling me to the ministry. And so I decided that if I was going to be a preacher, I was going to just uh, be different. I was not going to have a big nose. So he said, ever since God called me to the ministry, I've been picking my nose with a toothpick. So I won't get a big nose. And I said, I realize now that that's just pride and uh, so on. So now th that's, th that's ridiculous. Now I admit the guy may have had a sin of pride, but it's ridiculous to stand before an audience of people. Of course, I was in high school at the time this guy did this, you know. You can imagine the heyday we high school kids had with that story, you know. But, uh, you know, it, it's, so, it's so ridiculous for, for a, a, a thing like that to be brought up in a public matter. Now I'm really... If such a thing is an issue, it is strictly personal between him and the Lord. He has no, no business telling the world about such a thing uh, until, of course, after the, Lord has, after the Lord has forgiven him and it's cared for and so on. He might modify the story a little bit so it's a little better uh, and, and uh, share it with, with people as to the fact that the Lord had delivered him from pride doesn't have to go into the gory details, you see. But that's, that's that, that part of the, of the circle. Then there's, there are, there is what is 
called uh, private. I like to call this first level personal confession. And you know, quite frankly, I have to do that all the time. Wrong thoughts will come up in my mind and, and uh, uh, no one else knows about those thoughts between me and the Lord. I, I have to say, Lord, I admit to you that those thoughts are sinful. And I, I confess to you that I, that I harbored them, at least for a brief moment, sometimes longer than a brief moment. And uh, I, I thank you for your forgiveness. And now give me the strength to bring every thought into captivity, the obedience of Christ. And I go on from there. Hour later, wrong thoughts come again, maybe in a different area, sneak attack from the flank. And again, I find myself, you know, maybe with, maybe with a, a little bitterness rising up in my heart because of the press of my schedule or something else. And for a few minutes, I excuse it. And I, I, I say, uh, I say uh, well, I have a right to, to, to be frustrated and, and upset. And, uh, you know, uh, because uh, after all, uh, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm a busy man and I shouldn't have to face these kinds of things, you know. And then I realize that's sin. Sin. So I confess it to God. And I keep going. And that's, so this is a very, you know, if I stood up and, and, and uh, every Sunday and said, all right, before I can preach this morning, I've got to make sure my conscience is clear. And therefore, I'm going to uh, share with you exactly what, uh, what I've done wrong all week. Well, we'd never get to the message, folks. No? Never would. See? It's, it's, it's obvious that it has nothing to do with anybody. It's a personal thing. So you deal with it personally. There's some times where it's private. Maybe a person. Maybe two people. Three people. You know what? I've discovered something. And I, through long years of being in thousands of testimony meetings and, and many confession meetings, which they sometimes become, as I've already said. And I am absolutely convinced that for some people on some things, it is much easier to stand before an audience and admit a sin than it is to go to an individual personally and deal with that thing the way God wants you to. I'm convinced of it. I'm convinced that a guy can, can have an immoral relationship with a girl and he can stand up before an audience and admit that, moral relationship, that immoral relationship and say to the whole bunch uh, of the people, I, I've been involved in immorality. And uh, I want God's forgiveness and I want your forgiveness. I had no business doing it. And that same person would never go back to that girl and look her in the eye and say, I violated a trust. I failed in, in, a moral, in my moral relationship with you. I was wrong. I was the man. I took the leadership in the thing. And I confess it to you. It was a sinful thing to do. It was wrong. He would never do that. And I believe that, that a person, if they, if they stand, in fact, this is the way I deal with it. If a person stands in front of an audience and, and uh, confesses something that is, a that is a private thing between them and someone else, I seek to try to talk to them afterward and say to them, have you talked to those persons personally? And most of them say, oh no, oh no. I say, then you're not done, my friend. You confessed it publicly. But that really doesn't get to the heart of it. The point is it was an offense against people. You must go to them. If, if you come and present 
uh, something at the uh, present your gift at the altar Christ said in the Sermon on the Mount and there you remember that someone has reason to be offended because of you you go to them scripture is so neat you know if they offend you you're to go to them if you offend them you're, you're to go to them you say what about them well that depends on whether they're reading the same text you are but God doesn't get you off the hook either way and so and, and you notice what it says when it's talking about Matthew 18 somebody offends you you go to him alone alone that's the tough part you know most people never get by the first level of discipline in church you know why it's that alone business that bothers them a lot of people come to us and say I believe that I have reason for church discipline you say to the person well what you know what's what's the problem here well so-and-so did such-and-such and, such. and uh, I think that uh, you know two or three of the elders ought to go with me and that we ought to confront them about this and they say well let's read Matthew 18 go alone have you done that oh oh no 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 I have well when you do that first level come back and we'll talk about the second level they never come back Because they're not willing to go alone. You begin by going alone. And then you bring two or three neutral witnesses into the thing. It's very easy to get someone else to do what you ought to do. But you see, there's that private level where, where others are involved. Then there's the public confession. And public confession, that is where you do it in some public setting. You tell it to the church. Uh, here a while back, as most of us know, uh, there was a, a problem with uh, some very poor judgment on the part of uh, Bill Gothard in the Institute in Basic Youth Conflicts. It was very poor judgment. And he made some wrong decisions. And it, there was a backlash. And there was a problem that came as a result. And Bill sat down and wrote a letter to thousands of pastors across this country and uh, admitted his error and he still to this day will stand before audiences and admit what God taught him through the the offense that he caused way back there he wanted to have a clear conscience and uh, he his his wrong decisions touched so many lives that the only answer was public confession which he did and uh, so I think you, you have to realize that, that sometimes, you know, maybe thousands of people are involved. Other times, maybe a smaller group. Maybe it's a, maybe it's a Bible study you're in and you lost your cool in the Bible study. Well, you don't have to stand in front of the whole church and tell everybody because uh, if, that, if those people uh, in that Bible study have talked about that and told other people, that's their problem. That's their sin. Your offense was to the people in that room. All right? And so... It's important to, to confess, but keep it within the realm of, of where the offense was. And by so doing, you can cover uh, that, have that sin covered over and have it concluded. Psalm 85 and verse 2. Psalm 85 and verse 2. Thou hast forgiven the iniquity of thy people. Thou hast covered all their sin. 
You know, it's an interesting thing um, because in Psalm 85, it's talking about, first of all, in verse 1, the domination of sin. These people that uh, this is being spoken to are the returned exiles coming back. And it says, Lord, thou hast been favorable unto thy land. Thou hast brought back the captivity of the people. They knew the domination of sin. They knew the slavery that sin had brought. And then in verse, uh, verse 2, Thou hast forgiven the iniquity of thy people. Thou hast covered their sin. That has to do with the defilement of sin. Sin had to be covered because sin defiles. Therefore the blood had to cleanse it and had to cover it over. And then in verse 3, it says... Thou hast taken away all thy wrath. Thou hast turned thyself from the fierceness of thine anger. And uh, that's speaking uh, about the distress of sin. Uh, and uh, the, the idea that uh, the wrath of God has come because of sin. So you have the domination of sin, the bondage it brings, the defilement of sin, the fact that it makes it dirty, and the distress of sin because uh, God turns his, uh, his, his face away from his people and leaves them uh, hanging in their own sin. But you see, these people wanted restoration. They wanted change. They, weren't, they, they had already experienced those things and they did not, uh, they did not want to uh, continue in this. So they say in verses 4 and 5, Restore us, O God, of our salvation, and cause thine anger toward us to cease. Wilt thou be angry with us forever? Wilt thou draw out thine anger to all generations? And then, Wilt thou not revive us again, that thy people may rejoice in thee? Show us thy mercy, O Lord, and grant us thy salvation. So this is the, this is the idea of, of uh, getting that, that sin cared for and covered. The word for a matter, covereth a matter, is the word dabar. Now bar means the declarative word, that which is declared, the word. And uh, so uh, he covers that word, that, that wrong. There's a very interesting, and I just took this verbatim because I think that it's, it's, worth, it's worth hearing. In um, Dr. Harry Ironside's little um, uh, book on uh, the book of Proverbs, it just generally has a very brief uh, two or three line comment on each of the Proverbs. When he comes to this particular passage, he says this, A talebearer goeth about revealing secrets, but he that is a faithful spirit concealeth the matter. Talebearing, even though the tales be true, is most mischievous. If there be a fault, to lovingly admonish in private and then conceal from all others is in accordance with the mind of God. There is an instructive word in this connection in the 37th of Exodus. Verses 17 through 24, inclusive, relate to the making of the candlestick or lampstand for the tabernacle. Among the accessories to it, we read in verse 23 that Moses made seven lamps and his snuffers and his snuff dishes of pure gold. There is that here that is intensely interesting and unspeakably precious. No lamp will long burn well without occasional snuffing. Hence, God has made provision even for so apparently insignificant a matter as this. To the mind of man, it might seem of trifling importance as to how a light was snuffed and what was done with the black snuff afterwards. 
In God's eye, nothing is trivial that concerns the glory of his son or the welfare of his people. The snuffers were made of pure gold. That which symbolizes the divine glory and speaks too of perfect righteousness. It may often happen that some saint of God is losing his brightness and no longer shining for him as he once did. It is the priest with the golden tongs to whom is entrusted the delicate task of snuffing. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye who are spiritual, restore such an one in a spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Galatians 6 1. This will, or thus will, the snuffing be accomplished according to God, and the restored brother's light burn all the brighter for it. But what then? Is the evil to be spread abroad and be made a matter of common knowledge? Ah, there were not only the snuffers, but the snuff dishes. And they too were of pure gold. The priest was to put carefully away in those golden receptacles the black, dirty snuff which he had removed from the wick. To have gone about spreading the filth upon the spotless garments of other priests would have been to defile them all. It must be hidden away in the presence of God. Is not this where we often fail? How much grief and sorrow might have been prevented in many an assembly if the golden snuff dishes had been more often used. On every hand we hear of strife and discord brought about through evil speaking. And it's remarkable how ready we are to listen to that which we know can only defile. Oh, that there might be more angry countenances among us when the backbiter is out seeking to spot and blacken the snowy garments of, the, of God's holy priests. And he refers then to Proverbs 25, 23, which I want to turn to before I finish reading this because it's a very important text. Proverbs 25, verse 23. Here it is. The north wind driveth away rain, so doth an angry countenance a backbiting tongue. When you, you know, you always can tell. You ever see the, the when somebody's getting angry, the, the red just start down here at the bottom of their neck and just work its way right up like this? Well, a person can get angry enough at backbiting and gossip that they respond the same way. Someone comes up to you and says, by the way, did you hear about so-and-so? And all of a sudden, the red starts rising. <laughs> Smoldering. You know what? They'll get halfway through their explanation, and they'll stop. And they'll say, what's wrong? You're making me angry. Why am I making you angry? Because I hate gossips. <laughs> you imagine that? Woo! I, 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 like God, hates gossips. Boy, I'll tell you, they're not going to finish the story. You know the problem? We don't want the anger to show because we'd like to hear the rest of the story. <laughs> we want to hear the rest of all of the tale that's being said. Watch it. Show people an angry countenance. Let them know you're mad when they begin to talk behind someone else's back. And then when they see you're angry and they begin to backpedal, now you got them on the defensive. Now say, have you followed the steps of Matthew 18? Have you gone to them alone? 
Have you dealt with the thing face to face with them? Have you tried to bring restoration? They say, yes, 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 I did. Well then, the thing to do is talk to the leaders of the church and, and see if two or three of them will go and arbitrate the case. But the place is not to talk to me. I'm not part of the problem. I'm not part of the solution. You talk to someone else. Talk to those that are, are able to really do something about it. I'll tell you. It'll change them in a hurry. So again, he says, Oh, that there might be more angry countenances among us when the backbiter is out seeking to spot and blacken the snowy garments of God's holy priests, spreading their snuff around. In the New Testament, the divine way of dealing with a brother's fault is clearly defined. Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear it, thou hast gained a brother. If brethren would sternly refuse to listen to complaints against others until this first condition has been complied with, it would go far to do away with evil speaking. Many a brother would be one if approached in priestly nearness to God by one who carried with him the golden snuffers in the snuff dish. But if he refused to hear, then take with thee two or one or two more if, he, if still willful as a last resource tell it unto the church. But this not, not till the other means have failed. By thus acting in accordance with the word of God, much shame and misery might be spared innocent persons, and many wandering ones recovered, who through backsliding are driven deeper into the mire. God, too, will be glorified, and the Lord Jesus honored. For he has said, If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. If ye know these things, happy are ye if ye do them. John 13, 14, and 17. Well, Ironside tends to be extremely rich and a little convicting now and then. As you go out today, go out with the golden snuffer and the snuff dishes. And when that wick burns dimly because too much snuff, then you go ahead and snuff and keep it in the snuff dish. There's no need to have a committee with a bunch of snuffers. You're a priest, a believer priest, and you have an individual responsibility to care for the trimming of the lamps in as much as God brings them to you. And so, going back to Proverbs 11, we have that couplet that warns us not just once but twice. He that is void of wisdom, destitute of, of the kind of character within his heart that God demands, despiseth his neighbor, belittles his neighbor, but a man of understanding holds his peace. You just keep quiet. Give him time. He's still under construction. Please be patient. God is not finished with him yet. Give it time. And do what you can to contribute to his life and his spiritual growth. But then, in contrast to that individual who holds his peace and keeps quiet, there is the talebearer, the gossip, the backbiter. And he reveals secrets. He finds out something about someone else and immediately he wants to tell the world. But he that is of a trustworthy spirit, a, a spirit that you can, you can count on, that you can rely on, a spirit that is like 
like God's spirit, such an individual is one who will conceal the matter. He'll forgive it and he'll cover it over. He'll only reveal it in as much as, as there is the possibility of, of, of helping with the problem. A lot of times we become privy to information that really maybe we shouldn't even know. If we conceal it and just uh, hold it back because we really have nothing to do with it. It's not our, it's not our business, not our problem. We hold it back. In due time, God will honor that. If we have a, uh, a, a, a way of confronting the individual and seeking to, to, to minister to him, ye that are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness. Considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. And it goes on in that same text in Galatians 6 and tell, tells us we have a responsibility to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. We're told in that text, don't get weary in well-doing, for in due season you'll reap if you faint not. So you, 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 don't, you don't just back away from it. If you have a, a means to get to that person and talk to him and, and try to help him in that situation, then do it. By all means, do it. If he won't hear you, well, then go the second step of discipline. Follow the thing through in as much as you can. Let's get the thing cared for. Let's not lead it, let it uh, uh, continue. If God brought that to your, your uh, information and gave you that knowledge uh, through no uh, wish of your own, uh, somehow or another God may want to use you to try to bring a solution to the problem. But on the other hand, if, there is, if it's something that you've picked up as a rumor, as a piece of gossip, forget it. Forget it. You don't, you don't have to believe it's true. You don't have to disbelieve it. And become neutral about it. Because it really is not your problem. The person that told you. If I were you, I'd go back to that person and I would say, you know, you revealed something the other day. And I want you to understand that, that I don't know whether it's true or not. I have no substantiation. But you seem to have some, uh, the thought in mind that you could substantiate this. If that's true, don't you realize you have a responsibility to go and restore that individual? Have you done that? And then they say, well, no, I haven't done that. Well, then, why are you talking to people like me about it? My brother, I rebuke you in the name of the Lord. In the light of his revealed word, you have no business gossiping about someone else. Well, well, I, well I'm, not, I'm not really sure that that's true. I, I just heard the rumor. Well, then that's all the more reason why you shouldn't be talking about it. But what you should do is go to that other person. When you go to that other person, you tell him he has no business gossiping about it. He should go to the person. Can you imagine what would happen in the church of Jesus Christ if we strictly enforced that? My friend, I'll tell you something. We'd have revival. We would have sin dealt with. There would be a purity that would bring into our midst a wealth of the presence and power of God. We grieve the Spirit when we don't do that. When we fail in that regard, God's Holy Spirit is grieved. And when God's Holy Spirit is grieved, how in the world can we ever expect His blessing? It's essential. Absolutely essential. It's not an option. It's one of the most essential, but one of the most neglected things in the church of Jesus Christ today. 
Let's be careful. Let's be on the right side. Let's have golden snuffers and golden snuff dishes and snuff things out. I think what we ought to do today is just stay here all day. Who wants to go out in that guck? <laughs> Isn't that awful? Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your goodness, your love, and your mercy. And Father, in all seriousness, we are so thankful for your provision of an abundance of rain. And even though it's not seasonal and we're not used to it at this time of the year, Father, we, we are so thankful that you know best, even in that regard. Protect some of these people, we pray, that are, are really troubled by the rain because of the landslides and all of the rest. And Lord, just protect them, we pray, for especially our friends up at Mount Hermon. We just pray that the storm will, will not do them in in terms of their possessions. And Lord, we just trust you to continue your work in our hearts and lives. Thank you, Father, for all you've done. And we just praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.